That's fantastic, but I also wonder why you still watch American football given you watch an entire game of Rex Grossman. I was really drunk. <laughs> I was really. It was a bar in Berlin. Like <laughs> you two were o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I was laggard. I was, I was like, what, 17 then? So hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we'll be taking a look at the news from around the league and a little bit of an in-depth look at potential Hall of Famers who might not make it, take a review of some of the games from last week, take questions from you, the listener, and then on to our picks for next week. So hey guys, we've got Connor here, we've got Harry. Hey. And we got Ronan. Hello. How are we getting on, lads? Any crack? Hi, yeah, I've come into some possession of something quite interesting. I've come into possession of some, uh, some cigarettes from Hungary. And uh, they're, they're Marlboros, believe it or not. It took me a while to identify them. They've got a very uh, fetching sort of purple and deep blue colour scheme. It's mm. a bit reflective. But uh, they're called Vibe Beyond. Mm. And they feature the Vibe Ball. So I'm a little concerned as to where these came from because these are definitely sex shop cigarettes. Oh, they are. They are sex shop cigarettes. The Vibe Ball also tastes like smoking, I imagine, a Yankee candle would uh, would taste. <laughs> so they're interesting. Uh, fortunately, they have, a, they have a menthol, so we're okay. Ah, not too bad. What about yourself, Ronan? Any crack? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, this week was different. Sacrilegiously watched a football match instead of an American football match uh, with Ireland playing the Giants of Moldova to a 3-1 win. Very good, very good. We had, uh, for our non-Irish listeners, we had our budget today, uh, which is basically where the government sets out what it's going to spend money on. So uh, I spent most of the day poring over that and prepping for the, for the podcast rather than doing any work. Hello, anyone from work who's listening. <laughs> So we'll start with a bit of the news from around the league. Big news, literally, as we were just about to start recording. Colin Kaepernick is uh, just been announced as the starter for the San Francisco 49ers for week six. Chip Kelly has decided to end his exodus to the bench. Do we think this is going to make a large difference for this 49ers team, Harry? Is Colin Kaepernick better than Blaine Gabbert? We don't know after last year, but it's trying something different. And I think they're at a stage where they have to try something different. The Blaine Gabbert thing isn't working. He's been like just inaccurate hasn't looked comfortable at any point in this offense hasn't looked like he's developed the tools that the San Francisco 49ers obviously hoping he could develop that he never showed in Jacksonville also like they were trying to run all this read option kind of stuff and Gabbert like he's a fast enough guy he's an athletic enough guy but once teams cottoned onto it it stopped working pretty much immediately and Kaepernick you feel might be a little bit more suited to doing that it might be something that will work out from going back to a more simple uh, read style playbook a bit more like the offense he used to be in and seem more comfortable in. Hmm. So I don't see how it can really make things worse for them, given that earlier in the week we were hearing rumors that there was support for Christian Ponder in the locker room. Oh, God. I, I don't see how it can get worse for San Fran. So it's, it, it was the time to make the move, and if it works out, it works out. No, of course. And it was, it was a talking point on the offseason that Kaepernick's skill set was one that would lend himself to Chip Kelly's style of offense with his option reads and his his quick movement stuff. So we'll see. Uh, there's also some rumours flying around that the reason that this has now happened is some kind of rejigging of Kaepernick's contract. Some, one of the rumours is that he's removed his injury clause because if he gets injured playing this year, they're locked into paying him, I think, $17 million next year, which is a big concern. Like, Ronan, what do you make of that? Do you think this was a power play of waiting till he cracked so he could play? Or is this just incidental? Well, I think Chip Kelly has now said that the contract situation wasn't an issue and that he's chosen them without knowing whether that contract restructure has gone through yet or not but it's very much true that from a front office perspective they do need to look at this injury guarantee it's one of the issues that we saw with RG3 for example last year where he was kept off the field and it's probably part of the reason why they've been reluctant to do it this year even though there's been all these rumours about it his own agents have denied any type of 
negotiations happening. So it seems like right now Kaepernick is happy enough to ride the desperation wave and stay put on his contract. And it seems that the 49ers have so little to lose right now that they're willing to take that risk. I'm sure Trent Balky will try and get something done, but right now it looks more likely than not that they've lost the leverage that they did have before Chip Kelly made this announcement. No, fair enough. So we'll see how that plays out. I'm sure we'll have some more news on that next week. Other big news around the league. Uh, Mark Tressman's been fired as the offensive coordinator. Morningweg's going to take his place. And now there was a number of people, especially the game this weekend, screaming at their television saying, fire this man. They had a running back who was averaging a huge number of yards per carry and they just decided to stop using him for no discernible reason whatsoever. Uh, I'll come to you on this first, uh, Ronan. Like, what's your thoughts on this? Do you think this is a good shout to get rid of Tressman? And can Morningweg kind of fill in that gap well I think firstly like I don't think anyone predicted that Terrence West people will be shouting for him and that he would be getting offensive coordinators fired for being too good um, in terms of this like it, it's obvious that he didn't really work in that Ravens kind of off front office I think his kind of pass happy more quarterback centric approach wasn't really what the team was looking for at a point where they're in transition and they probably wanted to reassert what's considered the Ravens identity which is hard-nosed football on both the offensive and defensive side. So for me, I think this is more of a cultural change as much as anything else. And considering that I think that they want to establish the run, someone like Mark Tresman doesn't suit that. Hopefully Morningway can do more of that, or at least can have a shorter leash with Harbaugh and Church. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, pretty much for the exact reasons you're saying. Now, is Morningweg, I don't know, I think he's probably done his brand a little bit of damage over the last while, particularly the stint in New York was not particularly uh, kind to him, but he has been with the Baltimore Ravens now for a couple of years, working with the quarterbacks, so it makes sense in that sense to naturally take the guy within the system, the guy who knows the system, and be like, yeah, a guy who also has a vast reams of experience. Yeah, Tressman, it wasn't working out, we saw how anemic the offense looked, that didn't really seem to take into account what the team was good at and what the team could actually do. I don't know if Morningweg is necessarily going to be the solution, but I think it's pretty clear that Tresman wasn't the solution, and Morningweg just is the next guy up. Yeah. But um, it, it, like, it's definitely saying, right, something isn't working. We don't, we're not tearing up everything and bringing in somebody to completely revolutionize and overwrite everything we're doing, but we're going to just try and make it better from what we have within the organization, which is, you know, that's the typically, I think, solid Ravens management move. No, of course, of course. There's always, there's always a... A question of how much rope do they give someone who comes in mid-season as well, whether they say they give them allowances and give them a second season, even if it's a mediocre performance, or whether it's a put-up really well or you're a stopgap until we can fill in this position next year. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, Kubiak has been hospitalised as well uh, with flu-like symptoms. It's not considered massively long-term, but they, they, they've said that he's not going to be involved uh, coaching on Thursday night football. Uh, obviously, I think this is a loss for the Broncos, not having him on the sidelines to make adjustments. But in the long run, it's maybe not the worst thing to happen that it's given it's a short issue and also that it's up against the Chargers on a short week when they're at home. Uh, do we think this is going to impact this game a huge amount? No, I, I say they'll have the contingencies. The contingencies covered. Like they've got good coordinators down in Denver, so I, I think they'll be they'll be okay. Obviously, we hope mostly that Kubiak himself is fine and I, he'll be back next week. But yeah, I'd, I'd say Denver are a good, strong enough organization that they can they can cope with this. Yeah, no, I'd say I'd say so as well. Uh, Nigel Bradham was arrested trying to get on <laughs> a team flight. He brought a gun to the airport uh, because he forgot it was there. I think, um, as as Short said, if you dumbass things, you're pretty, you're pretty soon you're going to be labelled as a dumbass. Uh, he also said that he's the kind of guy who gets real pissed off when someone forgets they've got a bottle of water in their bag, let alone a fucking gun. What, what's your thoughts on this, Fitz? 
hits? Is it just a fluff piece, or do you think anything will come of this? Well, he was de-emphasizing the Leeds game plan this weekend, but I assume you know production matters more than smarts in the NFL, so I imagine it won't have a major effect on them. But uh, he probably won't bring a gun to the airport again. You'd you'd, you'd hope not. You'd hope not. <laughs> Like, maybe he just brings a knife to a gunfight. Uh, that'll, that'll be all right. Uh, quick rundown of some of the injuries we had this week before we get on to another piece of the news. So we had San Diego's woes continued. Uh, Jason Verrett, probably their best defensive player, although Bosa looked really good this week. Verrett's now injured, ACL out for the season. Them and their fucking ACLs, lads. And, of course, you know, we're not covering that game this week, but... Another amazing loss from San Diego in the fourth quarter. Yeah, they're really racking those up. Uh, Kevin White for Chicago has done his fibula. He's out for the season. He might be back at the tail end for a pointless time. This is a massive setback for a guy who missed an entire season last year and looked like he was only starting to get up to speed in the NFL. I suppose this probably has more long-term impact on him as a player for Chicago, given that this is going to set him back even further. Yeah, it's very unfortunate with White. Uh, A guy who looked very talented is sort of turning into a bust just because of injuries. Uh, which obviously sucks for him and uh, sucks for, as you say, long-term because Chicago obviously thought he could be a player down the line who could really help. Now, that may still be the case, but it's going to take longer than we thought. In the short term, for the team, it's not that bad because White still wasn't producing because he was still trying to get up to speed and get over his previous injuries. Mm. I think, you know, hopefully this will be the end of it for him in terms of injuries, but you've got to be worried when a guy's showing that his body is starting to break down already. Yeah, Yeah, no, of course. Arizona lost two players this week. Uh, Evan Mathis did his ankle. He's out for the season, presumably. And Michael Paddy has got a ligament tear, so he's out for two to four weeks. This is a team that is kind of going in the wrong direction at the moment, and I presume at least Mathis gone for the season is going to have a large impact on them. Yeah, it's definitely a loss. Like, you know, losing your two guards should have a major effect. I think it will affect the ability of their like running game to go through the middle. Now they have David Johnson, who's one of the best all-purpose backs in the league, so they could probably go to you know play your strengths, play the outside, we rights, etc. But I think the other worrying thing is that obviously Carson Palmer is a bit beat up. You don't really want internal pressure to be getting at him at this point of the season. And losing what are two, considered Evan Mattis, like a guard coming towards end of his career, but considered a lead in his day, and Ian Paddy considered one of the best free agent pickups last year. Major loss for Arizona, and you have to look out for whether Carson Palmer was able to stay in his feet for the next few weeks. No, of course, of course. Tampa Bay lost another running back. Charles Sims is out on IR. He might be back in eight weeks. Uh, he wasn't much of a running back, but he was a very good receiver for them. I think this is going to be a knock, but they're hoping that they're going to have Muscle Hamster back in the next week or so anyway, so hopefully that'll soften the blow somewhat. Apparently, Jaquiz Rogers is unstoppable, <coughs> so. Can't stop them, Jacuzzi Jets. 30, uh, 30 carries last week. Yeah, he had a crazy, crazy game. Uh, God damn, the, the Panthers looked awful. Oh, yeah. But we will discuss that either later today or on another podcast. But yes, the, Char- the, the, the Carolina Panthers are not looking like the team that we all saw last year. Miami lost until to a slip in the shower. Uh, <laughs> the Tevin Coleman special. He's uh, he's week to week. He's injured his ankle somewhat. That's fun. Koa Misi, he's also gone. He's got a very, very bad back injury. So we're kind of waiting on clarification of how bad that is. Again, Miami. I mean, not a team that's got a huge amount going on, so not the worst. Another team that's not got very much going on. Cleveland, Kessler and Whitehurst are both kind of injured. We're not sure who's going to be quarterbacking them. Uh, it would be uh, it would be a certain player, but he has to uh, be a running back slash wide receiver slash occasional safety uh, instead. And Minnesota had Andre Smith injured his triceps. He's likely gone for the season, but they've already brought in a replacement in the form of Jake Long. So hopefully that will uh, that will sort them out on those. So there was one other piece of news that caught our eye that ended up with quite a long discussion. That was 
Frank Gore has just passed Jim Brown in the all-time uh, rushing list. He's now ninth all-time. He's flying up these lists, but he's also not someone who you think of as a marquee player, not someone who you necessarily think of in things like the Hall of Fame discussion. But when you look at his numbers and his constant level of production, there might be an argument to be made for him. So it got us thinking about these players who have performed to a very high level but might be just on the bubble or not quite making it there. So we thought we'd have a look at a few others. So we've each selected one and I suppose we'll have a wee chat about them. So I'll go with you first, Fitz. Uh, who, who do you think is kind of on the bubble? Yeah, so the player I'm going to select is probably... Of the ones that we're, we're going to pick, probably one of the most likely to make the Hall of Fame. But I'm going to select Devin Hester. Obviously, he's the all-time leader in return touchdowns, five kick returns, and more famously, the all-time record of 14 punt returns, with over 14k all-purpose yards, which is around equivalent to people like Larry Fitzgerald, Adrian Peterson, and Andre Johnson. Although obviously, most of those are for punt and kick returns. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, he's fourth all-time in punt return yards. But I think his major contribution isn't just the stat line. Because there are kind of players from back in the day who have slightly better stat line. But that the fact that during his prime, he changed the way that like, teams built their actual rosters. Like, he was the player who like, established that, that having a dedicated punt or kick returner was something that made sense for your team. That when you're building your roster, that player doesn't necessarily need to be like an all-purpose special teams player or a wide receiver or a running back or whatever. That, that player just purely on the quality of their return play, can be part of an effective roster. And I think during his prime, he was someone that other teams had the scheme around, and that other teams have changed the way that they play that, that part of the game based on what he did in his prime. So I think when you look at uh, an aspect of the game, and you look at Hall of Fame players, looking at players who were perhaps the best at their position, but also who changed the, who changed the league, so, like, if you think in coaching terms, like Don Coriel may not have won things, but he changed the league in the way that he... I think Devin Hester had that same effect with the way he changed his return. I think just from a really sentimental point of view, it's fairly obvious that the NFL is trying to remove the return game from, like, prominence. Yeah. Possibly, like, mostly in response to safety kind of stuff. And it's kind of like, it would be very much like the NFL to write returns out of the rulebook, and then something they write these guys, like Devin Hester out of the history books as well. Like they did it to St. Louis, of course. So I think before that happens, I think it's important that while he returns to still a day, while Thunder returns to a day, that we recognise what an intense, exciting and amazing achievement it is to score a touchdown in those scenarios where there's, you know, a bunch of men trying to literally kill you <laughs> at like extremely high velocity mm. and still be able to do that for a consistent period, for a consistent time and make it look easy at times. Oh, so for yeah. that reason, I think Devin Hester should be the Hall of Fame, even though he's just a kick returner. Like I think, I think we can all agree we've all got really nice, good memories of watching him play. It reminds me a lot of like the stuff you'd see out of the Human Joystick back in the day. There's, there's, so, hole, yeah. there's some of those, some of those kick returns that he pulls off are just incredible. And like you say, you're right. Like it has changed entirely the way it was. I'll give you a little special Devin Hester memory. The first game of American football I watched ever uh, it was in a bar in Berlin at the time so it was, was the Indianapolis Colts Chicago Bears Super Bowl so one of my first exposures to American football was uh, Devin Hester's return that's fantastic but I also wonder why you still watch regular football given you watch an entire game of Rex Grossman I was really drunk <laughs> I was really it was a bar in Berlin at like <laughs> 2 o'clock in the drunk. morning yeah. I was laggard I was, I was like what 17 then yeah it was, uh, it was a long time ago but no that was uh, definitely made, made an mm. impression what about yourself then, Harry? Have you got uh, have you got someone picked out there? 
I do. And now I was going to talk. I was going to talk about Vince Wilfork, who's one of my uh, favorite players ever. But genuinely, I actually genuinely believe Vince Wilfork will make the Hall of Fame, and I don't think it's particularly in dispute that he will. So I've gone for something a little more controversial, shall we say? Uh, perhaps a little on the other side of what Fizzle's talking about. Uh, and also later in after the season, when we discuss the Hall of Fame, you're going to get my full-on Steve Tasker rant and why Steve Tasker should be in the Hall of Fame. So consider this uh, a prelude. Matthew Slater is a guy I want to talk about. Similar to what Ronan says about Devin Hester, is that special teams are quite an underappreciated part of football that are actually just an incredibly important part of the game. I think if you actually look at the success of guys like Bill Belichick and John Harbaugh, a lot of that comes down to their recognition of the importance of special teams and having players who can make a difference on special teams, either as specialists or as all-purpose players who can play in more than one phase of the game. Matthew Slater has been consistently the best player as a, as a gunner and on teams that are kicking off in the league for a very, very long time. He is a five-time pro bowler, three-time first-team all-pro, and I don't care what position you play, and that is an incredibly impressive achievement, particularly when you consider how many people act as gunners on special teams and how many you know people switch in and out of those positions and how volatile they are, especially considering the effort and impact of those plays, which is often underappreciated. Um, this is a guy, right, who has played 124 games and averaged one tackle per game, which for a special teams gunner is actually a very, very impressive statistic, even though it might not sound like it on paper. Quick fun fact to get out of the way, he's got a 5.5 yard per carry average and a 46 yard per reception average player as an offensive player. Now, he has one catch and two carries, but you know, they're nice numbers. But the important thing about a guy like Slater, and this is why he's stuck around so long, despite special teams players being such a, so expendable and such a volatile unit is he does two things. Firstly, he's just incredibly good at what he does at a part of the game that requires an incredible amount of athleticism and like the kind of intelligence that allows you to react to gaps and holes but to apply both mental and physical intelligence that is the same as any other part of the game that people don't realize is incredibly important on special teams. So what he's done is he's done that to an incredibly high level to the point where despite the fact that he basically can't contribute to any other phase of the game, he still has become defining in that role in New England in one of a unit that's been very, very good at that under the Bill Belichick era. But what he also has done is that he is a special teams captain, so as part of that, he is responsible for the entire function of that unit. Even when he himself isn't the guy putting up the statistics, he is at the heart and soul of what they do and how that unit operates. And New England special teams has been a very underrated unit because special teams units are underrated over this period of time. But you look at a guy who has some of the best accolades and best achievements in that, and you look at a guy who is one of the best in his position, playing the game in an era where people are bigger and stronger and faster and more physical than ever, and having the kind of endurance that he has and the consistent production that he has had over, at this stage, a nine-year career that looks like it's, looks like it's not going to fade anytime soon. That's remarkable. And I think when you are the best at your position, no matter what that position is, Wait till we get to the long snappers next year, right? <laughs> um, you deserve contention for the Hall of Fame. And he's a player who won't get nominated. He won't get considered because of the role he plays, because it's one of the most underappreciated roles in the game. But when you are the best at what you do, pretty much consistently for over five years, you should at least be nominated for the Hall of Fame, if not in it. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, like I said, it is that thing of a lot of special teamers get overlooked. 
And it's also one that's not visible outside of you. Quite often you lo- having to look for it. And I think a lot of people ignore that element of the game and that's why a lot of them get overlooked. Uh, I've gone for a slightly different take on my one. Uh, I've gone for a much more normal position. I've gone for a defensive uh, middle linebacker, Derek Johnson for the Chiefs. Big surprise Chiefs guy. Joined the Chiefs in 2005. He's had 11 years. He's only had one season where he's missed significant time due to injury. I think he's missed a sum total of seven games outside of that in an 11-year career. Huge numbers massive production but not the flashy production you'd expect to see in the modern day where it's mostly focused on outside and pass rushing linebackers so he's like over a thousand combined tackles currently leads has has the Chiefs record for most tackles ever 27 and a half sacks 14 interceptions 21 forced fumbles and four touchdowns he's been to the Pro Bowl four times been first team all pro was second team all pro twice uh, and he's still got another year or two left in him he's an incredible run stuffer and like I said suffers from not being in a flashy position so you don't always see the production but he adds an awful lot to it and he's also in a unit that then because of the pressure he brings and the job that he does allows other players like Tamba Holly and Justin Houston on the outside to get huge levels of production and there's actually what myself and uh, Harry got talking about on Sunday about this idea of there are certain units who perform so well that everyone then gets considered but the problem is if you're in a very good unit but not like a legendary level unit quite often those pieces then get forgotten about because it's only the headline pieces that uh, that stand out. So it'll be the person who got Derek Thomas, the the the, the old outside linebacker for the Chiefs, who had a twenty sack season and stuff. It's things like that that get remembered rather than than the level of coverage he's been able to. He's great unit. Very, very good at his job, good in coverage, good at run stuffing, but he's maybe not as visible as other players are. Big leader in the locker room, huge amounts of charity work and all that kind of stuff. His tackling numbers are also disgustingly consistent and very similar to our discussion about Gore. Essentially that uh, if we just go back over the last five years, say uh, in 2011 he was fourth in tackles, 2012 he was third, 2013 he was eighth, 2014 he was injured and 2015 he was seventh. Like this guy is always up at the top of these of these groupings, but I do think because he's not as visible, there's less of a chance of him getting there. But also, there are one, if not two, very strong uh, MLB candidates that are going to be going in. Ray Lewis has the most insane numbers I've ever seen. Like you kind of forget how good he was because he's such a horrible human being. <laughs> but like, so he's going to be going in. He's going to be first ballot. No, no questions asked. And then there's also Brian Erlocker who'll be going up for the for the thing a couple of years before him. Now. Like him or loathe him, he has very good numbers production, but he's also burnt a lot of bridges. But it means there's two people at that position who were maybe a little bit showier, a bit more kind of face of a franchise. So that will probably hurt him as well. But I do think Derek Johnson, incredibly consistent and incredibly high-level performer, but maybe he's going to be lost in the deluge of the good defences that he's played on in this time. I think it's really interesting because I think when you say like Frank Gore, I think he's got exactly the same problems Gore does just on the defensive side. Mm. And the big problem for Ray Lewis is going to be first battle Hall of Famer. He's going to be out of the way. Erlacher's an issue because, like you say, Erlacher's burnt those bridges. Erlacher could stick around for years not getting yeah. into the Hall of Fame, and that could be a problem for a guy like Johnson. Yeah. It's a shame because Johnson's yeah, very on good. On the other side, I don't think there's any really coming after him who's that close, except Pickley and Wagner, who are a fair bit off that. So I think mm-hmm. there might be a gap in there before those two guys retire up around school, which is like more than a decade, maybe probably, that he could, he could get in. So I don't think, I don't think it's hopeless at this point. Oh, I especially keep racking up the seat like he is right now. Yeah, don't forget Connor's favourite favourite middle linebacker of all time, Clay Matthews, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Clay Matthews, Jesus Christ. 
Oh, I'm so sick of his shit. I had a long talk with, uh, I met my American friend, Cotter, over the weekend. His wife was with him and uh, she's a big uh, Packers fan. And uh, we had a long discussion about how much of a prick I think Clay Matthews is. <laughs> uh, it was a fun conversation. But yeah, like those, those are just a couple. And obviously, if you guys have any ideas about players you think will be on the bubble, fire them into us. We can always have a look at them or a discussion underneath the Facebook page. Uh, although if you talk shit, you get cut. We had to ban a couple of people off our Facebook page this week. Turns out we have racist fans. Yeah. We we didn't appreciate that what I found really weird was that like so it was this week they decided to have a conversation about Black Lives Matter stuff in like the one week this year that we haven't discussed it like <laughs> I, I, I don't get it but yeah so uh, so you know talk shit get hit with the block button <laughs> uh, so I suppose we'll move on to looking at the games from last week so this was the first game we're going to look at. We've got three this week. Uh, up in the Ring of Honor, which is probably a surprise to people when they looked at this on paper. Philadelphia, Detroit, 23-24. to uh, Detroit got out to a great start. Three touchdowns and three drives. Then the Eagles suddenly remembered how to defense and shut them out for nearly the rest of the game. And I say nearly because the three points they scored beyond that was what made the difference. Crushing interception uh, by Darius Slay at the end with about a minute left ended this game. It was Wentz's first interception thrown and also a terrible decision to make this big long move over the middle like I, I, I don't get that but we'll get into that in a bit uh, there was no great individual performances in this game like 350 yards to the Eagles 240 yards to the Lions it was a very close game and I think it showed some of the strengths and weaknesses of these relative coaching staffs in how they adjusted to the game because even though Detroit won this in the end, it wasn't through them adjusting and being able to be better than they were earlier. It's that they did not react well to the changes the Eagles made. So I suppose I'll come to you first on this, Harry. Like, Can we garner a pattern or a purpose to this Lions team, or are they just a random number generator like their quarterback? The Lions did the same thing they've done the whole season, so they're consistent in this regard, in that they jumped out to a lead and then spent the whole game trying their best to piss it away. And this time they didn't manage to do it. There was very little, I think, in terms of, as you said, adjustments. There was also very little in terms of consistent performers from the Lions. They only completed 19 passes. They really benefited, I think, from the Eagles playing badly at the start a lot and then sort of dropped off massively once Philadelphia came back into the game weren't really able to make the make the adjustments and in the end were saved by, yeah, as you said, a horrible decision and uh, uh, Darius Slay again, who's a very good cornerback coming to the rescue. But you do need to wonder like how much this team is just riding its luck again. We're seeing them look for consistency and not find it. Like Matthew Stafford threw three touchdowns, right? But he only threw for 180 yards. And their top rusher had less than 50 yards. We also saw him once again with Zach Zenner that white men can't rush. Plan B. Danny Woodhead. Well, yeah, Danny Woodhead, that's okay. White men who aren't Danny Woodhead can't, can't <laughs> da- rush. Da- Danny Woodhead can't rush, he's missing a knee. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Anyone remember Peyton Hillis? Yeah. But, Greatest cover of yeah, Madden yeah, ever. Oh my god, Cleveland. There was a genuine, again, lack of like plan. They were sort of riding. It just happened to work for them this time after getting off to that hot start again. We showed the, uh, the point with the running game, aside from, you know, is that there was no plan B. The theoretic thing still isn't working tremendously well as a lead back, but they don't really have a backup plan there. Uh, none of their receivers are particularly outstanding. Like, they were all competent, but nobody really showed that they could stretch the defense and, and do what needed to be done there. It's worrying that they're just sort of happy to just keep going into this sort of fuddle of like, well, we might win, we might not. We'll play well for part of the game. We won't play for the rest of it. And if we win, we win. And if we don't, we don't. There is no ability to react to what opponents are doing on this team. They just keep trying to do their own thing, which just isn't really that successful by and large in general. So you have to wonder again, and this is a question that's been asked again and again about Detroit, is whether or not Jim Caldwell 
is up to the task of actually getting this team to progress rather than just stagnate. And once again, we're seeing that this is probably not the case. Although, for the first time ever, I saw him show emotion. Yes, whenever yeah. the whenever the turnover happened. Yeah, when they recovered the fumble, Jim Caldwell was jumping up and down on the sidelines. It was like, wow, that was weird. Good, good win for Detroit in the sense that they showed initially that they could play well against a good opponent and they held on, which is important. But you wouldn't trust this team to beat any team week to week. Yeah. They're just they're just horrendously inconsistent. I, I, I just don't. I have no idea what to make of them whatsoever. Yeah. Apart from now, I've I've cracked the code of start Matt Stafford every second or sorry every odd numbered game this season. That seems to be the pattern for him in fantasy. Ronan, the Eagles looked like a much better team, but still lost. Like what happened with them that they were so misprepared at the start, given that they had a bye week, and how do they adjust moving forward? Well, like I think the bye week might have hurt them in this case because obviously. They just came off a kind of signature win going into the bye week with the, the victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then suddenly they're taking a bye week off and they have to play the Lions next. And, you know, on paper it's like, oh, the Lions, that's an easy easy double considering how well we're playing. And this is a team that obviously is playing a rookie quarterback and a new head coach. And it's basically a whole new football team. And there's kind of a sense here that they got caught, caught in the hop. But they might have maybe believed their hype a little bit too much in this case. When you look at the actual talent on their team, they're a good team. They're not a great team. So when they, when, if they want to win consistently, they need to play up and make sure that they eke out every single advantage that they can. And certainly they need to make sure that they come out ready to play every week. All, you know, it's a cliche, but every, any given Sunday and all that means that a team with the level of quality as the Eagles can't afford to be treating the Lions with this amount of disrespect. Now, they obviously wised up in the second half and Jim Sport made some pretty effective adjustments. But you shouldn't have had to make this adjustment. You shouldn't have been game planning before that. And those players should be play, like executing that game plan effectively from the start. I think for the Eagles, this is a cautionary tale about where they are as a football team. They have a talented rookie quarterback who continues to show a lot of a lot of poise and a lot of talent. Although in this game he made one mistake towards the end of the game. But they are not a supremely talented team that's going to roll roll over teams week after week. They need to be careful. They need to rate themselves in, and they need to be aware that they're obviously in a division now, which is a lot more competitive than usually is, with the Dallas Cowboys obviously being quite good as well this year. But if they do that, and that with Carson Wentz, they should have an effective offense, and that this defense can regain its form from next week on. So I think for this one, which is a brain fire from lack of preparation, maybe a bit too much by their own hype, but I think they should still be good enough to eat out what should be competitive at NFC East, at least being competitive in week 17. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. So we'll see how those guys get on uh, next week as well. Into the neutral zone we go. Uh, this was a big game. I think I flagged it last week as my, my game of the week. Uh, Atlanta, Denver, 23-16. to 16. Uh, An unstoppable force meets an immovable object, or at least that's what we thought uh, going into this. Atlanta were up 20-3 to three in the third quarter uh, and coasting a late surge with multiple onside kick attempts. Uh, couldn't actually get it done. Atlanta's offense looked very strong. Their running back, who was considered potentially a medical non-play because of his sickle cell condition, uh, was, was, was running real well, looking real good. Um, I did have a real confusing moment at the end of this looking through it. Like, so there's 14 seconds left and they kicked a field goal to then presumably try and onside and take two entire field-length shots at a touchdown. Like, that seems like a 
bad strategy to me. Uh, also, their, their their offensive line, for some reason, just went to shit in this game. Uh, he was sacked six times. So, Harry, I'm going to come on to you first on this one. Um, I'm going to ask you about the Falcons. So, the Falcons sort on. They've got two of the top defenses going into the year defeated now, even though Carolina's falling back. Could this be the year that Atlanta actually pull it all together? I believe it when I see it. The thing about a team like Atlanta is historically when they're going to collapse but then again a few years ago this was a playoff team but uh, it's, it's very difficult to keep the faith with the Falcons that said they are playing absolutely spectacular ball at the moment uh, they looked absolutely fantastic in this game a defense has had four sacks on the season came away with six Vic Beasley who has been a guy who has sort of had a lot of potential but never quite delivered was a monster in this game and that's the kind of production they'll be looking to get out of him uh, in future like their defense shut Denver down Really, as much as we expect their offense to be the story, and it was, well, I'll come to that in a second. The defense was, was spectacular. They limited Denver to three points for that sort of fourth quarter mini comeback, garbage mm-hmm. time, whatever you want to call it. On offense, weren't as good as we expected them to be. Uh, Matt Ryan struggled to complete. His pass is just over 50% completion rate, but again, this is against a genuinely elite defense, and they did really, really struggle on third down. Both teams struggled on third down quite mm-hmm. significantly. But what happened was the difference was made in the way... Atlanta schemed this game out. We know that you can't just go in with your regular game plan and beat the Broncos. And this is what is impressive because at the start of the season, I said, Carl Shanahan is an idiot. He's a monotone offensive coordinator. He doesn't know what he's doing. He only thinks about Julio Jones. And this season, he has proved me to be the actual idiot. Because again, we saw Atlanta come in, be able to make adjustments going into the game, knowing what they wanted to do, play a game with Freeman and Coleman as both rushers and receivers, keep Denver constantly off balance, exploit space underneath because of obviously the threat of Julio Jones, and work that. Like, Tevin Coleman only had, I think, 10 touches this game, but he had over 150 yards, both rushing and receiving, uh, sorry, a combined rushing and receiving because of the space he was able to find, because they were able to create these explosive plays, because they knew they could you can't just try and grind down a team like Denver, because they will beat you into pace if you do that. I think it was Chris Harris after the game said, we've only seen a game plan like this once uh, as a unit, and that was when we played New England in the playoffs, a game that Denver ultimately won. So credit has to really go to the coaches, firstly in Atlanta, for coming up with the way to beat Denver, and secondly to the players for being able to execute that at an extremely high level. So if Atlanta can play like this and their coaches can scheme like this, they're going to be really, really difficult to stop this season. I don't know, like, I suppose this is, like, Denver's obviously a team that's built on on its defense. We can maybe put a lot of this on the quarterback. Maybe it was just a down week for the, for the Broncos. But this is a scenario where if your defense can hold as explosive an offense as Atlanta was and as well-schemed an offense as Atlanta was to 23 points you got to hope that's a position that your team can win in, right? Like, who, do, who, who does his blame fall on? Well, like, Paxton Lynch is a rookie quarterback. He was expected to be a project. And he doesn't really sit in with, with the philosophy of that offense, which is to be a zone-read-type run offense. And I think that kind of showed up, because like, when they tried to integrate him towards the back end of last week, after Simeon went out, you could definitely see them trying to integrate the same kind of shotgun stuff that, that we'd seen more of under Manning last year. So I think like there's a lot of adjustments that had to be made on the hoof to accommodate Paxton Lynch. And I think that was always the expectation with them when, Tre- when Trevor Simeon won the, the game in the offseason. Now, Trevor Simeon is expected to be back next, like this week. Uh, at most, he'll miss Thursday Night Football and be back after that. So I don't think there's a major thing here. But yeah, you have to be worried when your rookie quarterback that you pick in the first round uh, has a bit of a stinker like this. But I think there are mitigating factors for why you wouldn't have expected that transition to be seamless in the, in the first place. This isn't the case with a backup quarterback 
he's the same as your primary quarterback. These are two very different types of quarterback with two very different types of game plans around them. So you can see where that goes. Like I think the defense, as Harry mentioned, did get beat on a bit, um, especially the linebacker core and like the idea of like attacking the linebackers, which are running backs. Uh, apparently, Tevin Coleman and, and Devonta Freeman are better than James White, which is probably why they won. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, like I think like there's there's reason to worry going forward. But I think Paxton Lynch is expected to get better with time. And I think it's just one of those cases where, uh, you know, if you're a defense first team, you're going to lose some close games more, like, you know, almost certainly over the course of the season. I don't think it's time to panic yet. I think, you know, Trevor Simeon's coming back. I never thought it's those words. Don't panic. It's fine. <laughs> it's nearly Simeon time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, no, of course. Like, it was it was a very interesting game to watch. And like I said, there's kind of multiple layers of individual performances look good, but also just coaching was good. And it'll be interesting games for both these teams next week, as we'll be talking about in a little while. Uh, they they won, won in division, one against another challenging defense. So we'll see how these guys progress. Giant uh, into the dumpster fires. Uh, we've got Tennessee at Miami. Oh, for fuck's sake, like... <laughs> The only thing positive in this game was Tennessee's run game. 235 yards, Murray, Mariota and Henry were all in the mix. Uh, they all looked really good. Murray ran well. They finally started working Henry in. I think he averaged something like 7.5 or 8 yards a carry. Like He was he was looking good. Mariota also averaged about 7 yards a carry, which was which is impressive. Uh, Miami's line was complete Swiss cheese. Uh, 6 sacks and 7 quarterback hits. Uh, whereas Miami's defense managed 0 sacks and 1 quarterback hit. Uh, against, like, we did see this, the stats flash up quite a bit. Tennessee's line has been very good this year, uh, but more in run blocking than pass blocking. But uh, we'll see. Both the both the passing attacks, when you combine them, made roughly three hundred yards. Like when the crowds chant for Matt Moore, you've got a huge <laughs> problem. Uh, so, Rodan, I'll come to you on this one first. Like the run game was strong, but not much else. Is there any chance this kind of college style offense can work in the NFL? Because it is two road wins they've got. Of the two wins, they've both been on the road. Well, if they were in any other division, I would say no. But they are in the AFC South, and as we're seeing with Houston, kind of like looking on the dance up right now. You know, nine and seven could be enough. Eight and eight could be enough to like get a playoff position from the AFC South. So in that sense, yeah, they're still in with a chance. Uh, but yeah, this is a very one-dimensional team. It's got a good run game. That's about it. The defense is average. Bad. It's very nondescript. There's not really anything to really talk about the defense. They just kind of, they kind of randomly give up points. Something uh, like at certain points they look okay at one point, but they look bad the next play. And on the offense, like Mario, that looks good if you give him enough time on play action and such like that. But that only really happens if the run game is as dominant as wasn't in this case. I think they might actually have the number one running attack right now. That can only get you so far in modern NFL. Like, I think there's a difference here between some of those teams where you could have a dominant or a dominant run and a dominant defense, and that's enough to get you over the pump. But I don't think a dominant run offense by itself is sufficient. You're going to need to see a lot more improvements from the quarterback position to be able to exploit what they, like, exploit that. And I don't think Mario is showing that right now. Everything that we've seen so far this year indicates that Mario hasn't made the next step up. And unless he shows more progression, and like there's a decent start here, but not enough to really shout about. Maybe they have a chance because of the SC side. Uh, that's their major. That's the major benefit they have. Otherwise, they're gonna hope this run game keeps going. Yeah, I don't really see it, but you never know. 
Yeah, I don't either. Like, it is, I think, Mario looks like he's regressed. And also, what's his name? Doriel Green Beckham's actually looked fairly decent in the few touches he's gotten in, in Philadelphia. And you got to maybe question the, the the decision to get rid of a big-bodied potential receiver for a struggling quarterback whenever they can't, they can barely make 200 yards. Harry, how do you fix a problem like Miami? Defense is poor, their offense is poor, the special teams are poor. They've got a whole load of money tied up into players who aren't performing. Boring to watch. Their coaching is nowhere. And their fans are now cheering for Matt Moore. What do you do? What's going on? I don't know what's going on in, in, in Miami other than that they're terrible. Positives to take away from the game. Their run game was bad, but Tennessee's run defense is pretty good. So it could have been worse. Um, that's <laughs> it. I've got nothing else for this team. It's done. The Tannehill thing is over. I think we've known that really since last season. And the team just does nothing to help him by consistently getting him killed. Yes, they were down a few O-linemen, but it doesn't matter. Once again, you have a quarterback who has no time, who is scared behind that line, and is struggling to do things. So he's never going to really reach the potential that his athleticism gives him because he's playing scared and he's playing badly. You have a chaotic run situation. The defense is just... like Byron, Was it Fizzle who called Byron Maxwell for worst... Uh, Cornerback before we started. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Fizzle, I think congratulations, you've won that one. Byron Maxwell was monumentally bad. Again, they don't have, like, is, is, like, this team has talented players, right? But they're all underperforming. They're all playing terribly. And this is something that's, they've replaced the coaching staff over, and it's continuing to happen. There, there, like, is, there is a potential that, so it is mostly, mostly Miami players who are starring in ballers. <laughs> so maybe they're getting distracted with all the Hollywood lifestyle because I think Sue featured in three episodes and I think the Dolphins are the main team in that you know it's as plausible as anything else I've heard <laughs> but I just yeah I'm just not sure where Miami go and like they have gone through all of these organizational changes they've gone through all of these things that a team should be doing be like oh you know tear up this part of the team we're going to reestablish, and then we need to fix the O-line and we need to fix the defense and, we, and just nothing works I just don't know what's going on there and that's why it's so difficult to point at being like, what do you do with Miami? Because the dysfunction seems to just transcend the personnel, which is just a very, very strange thing. And even like a team like Cleveland, who are doing really badly this season, or Tennessee themselves, there are still things on those teams you can point to and say, there's hope here. There's something here that's showing a spark. There's young players that are playing well. We've got potential. We've got certain things that are working. Miami... I, what can you point to on Miami that's working right now? What can you point to on Miami that hasn't been a massive disappointment? There's more or less nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... It's a depressing time to be a Miami fan. Although they've got a newish stadium, don't they? They've re- well, they redid it a little bit. The, the, they, they, and they called it the Hard, the hard Rock, Rock stadium, stadium. So they ruined that. Jesus Christ. Miami, take a fucking look at your life. Reassess. Like, go, go on holidays for six months and find yourself. Because you're fucking awful. You're the third best team in Florida. Oh, actually, they're probably worse than the third best team. The <laughs> fifth best team in Florida. <laughs> sort yourselves out, boys. Um, we're going to have a look at some questions from listeners. Okay, so we're going to tackle one question in particular this week that came in from uh, yeah Samuel Willis. He said, this thing happened in the Baltimore game. They fumbled a ball as they were scoring a touchdown and the other team got the ball with no points on the board. Okay, so this is a very weird rule. It's turned up twice this year already because it happened in the uh, in the Chiefs game uh, against uh, the Jets as well. This is a fucked up, nonsensical rule by which if a player fumbles the ball out of the end zone... 
the ball then is returned to the other team uh, as if it was a touchback and starts on the 20 or the 25 yard line. The rationale for this is something we had a quick discussion about and none of us can actually understand. Fitz, do you have any idea why this is actually the case? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, no I, I, it seems like one of those cases, like someone just left a hole in the rule book from back in the day and doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, I suppose it's kind of a situation where, like, like obviously, if, if they fumbled and someone touched the dad, like, like if, if you assumed it being a kick, like a kick, and the same thing had happened, then it would be a touchback. So I suppose from that perspective, that's where the logic is coming from. But obviously, in this particular situation, it should be treated differently, but it isn't. So... Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit one of those weird rules to do with kicking. Like there are, there's always kind of loopholes and differences in how those rules are interpreted on on kicking situations and on on um, fumble situations that are kind of weird and strange mm. that have evolved over the years. I just think it's one of those things that you know, the NFL will probably change now or hopefully will, but which uh, is just one of those artifacts. You know. So if the person was to fumble it literally about two inches beforehand. They his their own team would get it back on the like two inch line. So it seems like a large amount of impact to make for a single. Play. The only thing I could think of that possibly might have been the underpinning of it would have been in a in a short time situation where people are stuck, they're about to get tackled, that they would fumble it forward in the hopes that someone would someone else would be able to get into it at the end zone. But I think there's a specific rule about intentionally fumbling the ball. So ever, ever since the Holy Roller, yes, hmm. there has been. Um, and it's right you say it's a huge difference because Washington threw an interception which was returned for 12 yards and gained 17 yards on the play and kept the ball. That was the net effect of it. It doesn't make any sense. That, like, It's an excessively harsh punishment for the team who either make the turnover in this case or, as is the case with Kansas City, fumble the ball running in. I think people are kind of used to it. I think it gets kind of under, sort of swept under the rug with all the stuff about catches and interceptions as we saw players going out of bounds this week and all the confusion but it's, it's one of those rules that has just stuck around for ages there doesn't seem to be any particular reason to keep it in there particularly given the product the NFL wants to sell like why would you have a rule that makes the game more boring that it is, doesn't protect anyone or doesn't really help anyone or doesn't do anything like that and just punishes teams excessively for making a mistake and like you say they've already factored in this kind of thing so like why not do something like you have in 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 rugby for example you know th- th- not specifically obviously the ball going being fumbled out, out of bounds it's actually similar in rugby where you have basically a situation where certain plays can result in a ball being given say five yards out a five yard scroll exactly yeah. that kind of thing or if you think that's too big of an advantage put it at the 20 for the team that fumbled the ball and let them keep the ball yeah like what 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 I would have thought would make sense for this would be if this is something you want to penalize and you want people doing for whatever reason I'm sure there's probably a reason that we're just not smart enough to think of why not make it then that it's a loss of five yards and a loss of that down. So if someone starts on the two and they go to run it in, they fumble it out of the end zone, they then have to go from the seven. They lose five yards on that and they don't get a replay of downs. That seems more than adequate for what is a completely ridiculous rule. Because what it is, is it's if no one makes a play on a fumbled ball, it preferences the defensive team for no given reason. Barring, obviously, a defensive recovery, there's no circumstance under which you fumble and the other team comes up with the ball that isn't like, obviously, defensive recovery or turnover on downs, yeah. right? Like, you fumble out of bounds, you've just fumbled out of bounds. If you, and there's all rules governing what you can do, but this is almost unique. And, I, yeah, like you say, I, I, they need to look at this because it's not fair. And I know that's such a weak thing to say, but at the end mm. of the day, it's, it's a game, really it's not, a sporting like, contest. Yeah. The rules should be there to create fairness. That's the whole point of having rules, to stop teams doing things that disadvantage the other team or seen as unsporting or unfair. So why is this one still there? 
I don't know. Like, good question, Samuel. We were discussing this on Sunday as well. Uh, I don't think any of us know why it's here. It's an art, It's an artifact that should be gone, uh, and it's a completely unbalanced rule. So, yeah, like, we also think it's dog shit. <laughs> You're not alone, my friend. So, yeah, we'll, we'll swing on and we'll have a look at our games for next week. Yeah, so we've got a few games to run through here. Uh, we'll start on Thursday night, Denver at San Diego, another in-division game. We've taken Denver across the board in this one. Uh, Fitz, why have we all taken Denver? Uh, Denver are still a good team. They get Simeon back, and San Diego have a almost uncanny ability to lose games at the moment. So I think on the balance of you know records and everything else, you really have to go for Denver. Well, potentially, but this is a game where they're unlikely to be up by two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, so maybe they'll <laughs> win this one. <laughs> uh, Philadelphia at Washington I was very close to, to flipping my pick on this one but uh, we've taken Philly across the board Harry why have we all taken Philly Look, we saw Philly get a little bit exposed against Detroit but you think given how this team has been playing they'll be able to make adjustments the Washington still don't look good they were very lucky to beat Baltimore as we discussed during the question that ultimately was what swung the game for them other than that they look pretty poor in all phases of the game there's going to be problems for them that we're already seeing manifest whereas Philly just look all around like a more competent team yeah like even though they're on the road I think this is one that they should do Uh, Pittsburgh at Miami we've all taken Pittsburgh across the board Basic reasoning, as we, we already discussed, Miami look like dog shit. There's nowhere on that team that we think is actually a strength apart from in who's got the biggest contracts and the most underperforming players. Pittsburgh looking strong. Uh, their offense looks real good. Whenever they're winning, they win and they keep going for it. Like They do crazy shit just randomly for the crack. Oh, I don't like punting. I'm just going to try faking it. Like, ah, yeah, they're, they're going to stomp all over them. The Hard Rock, the Hard Rock Stadium will be, uh, will, will be shook. Uh, the soft rubble stadium. <laughs> the, the Barney Rubble Stadium. <laughs> uh, Jacksonville at Chicago. This is a close enough one, but we went Chicago across the board. Uh, Fitz, why Chicago? Yeah, like, I think Chicago have a little bit of life in them, due, surprisingly, to Brian Hoyer actually looking like an effective quarterback. The Destroyer! Yeah, the Destroyer is in town and making effective plays, occasionally scoring touchdowns from further than 10 yards out. <laughs> Amazing, I know. And with Jordan Howard, they have a reinvigorated run game. Now, Jacksonville have been the kind of team that seem to have lost more than they should have. They nearly threw a game that way in London. And it's just hard to pick Jacksonville because they just haven't looked good at all this season. Yeah, of course. And that running game starting to look good for them there as well. Cleveland at Tennessee. Again, one I nearly went out my own on, uh, but decided not to in the end. We have for Tennessee across the board. I'm almost immediately regarding this call. Harry, why are we going Tennessee? Well, I was very close to this as well, but I think two factors made, uh, made the difference here. Firstly, in that Tennessee's run game should be enough to deal with Cleveland, but also... Cleveland, we saw one of the things New England did very well against Cleveland was they shut down Cleveland's run game, made them throw the ball. Cleveland were not comfortable doing that without the running game to set it up. Tennessee's uh, run defense is probably the best part of their defense. So I think they're going to have just enough to make Cleveland uncomfortable enough that they can eke out a win here. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, We've got Cincinnati at New England. We've taken New England across the board. New England just look like they're ready to destroy a whole lot of teams real, real quick. Cincinnati have looked okay, but have actually faltered a little bit of late. I'm I'm not buying. They've still got a real good roster, but I think they're feeling the coaching losses more than we maybe gave that credit for. As San Fran take on Buffalo, we've got an interesting change to the lineups here. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Cam is now going to be starting quarterback. Does that change our opinions on it? 
does it fuck Buffalo across the board from us, uh, even though none of us trust Buffalo all that much? Yeah, like all his force is dependent on Tyrod Taylor coming in behind his centre instead of Picard. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, an interesting decision by Tyrod Taylor to nearly screw him over. It is tough to pick Buffalo because in many ways they are the Rams of the AFC in the sense that you can basically just throw numbers in the air and come up with whatever number you want. Um, but like based on what they've done over the last two weeks, they look like they've turned the corner kind of like Chicago and therefore this is a team that should have enough to beat what is a very talent for San Francisco side. No, of course. This is the first one where we've got a bit of disagreement coming in. We've got Baltimore at the New York Giants. I've taken Baltimore with several question marks beside it. Uh, and you guys have taken the Giants. So I suppose, Harry, why the Giants? Yeah, I'm not. this, this is going to be a bad game. I'm just going to put that out oh, there. Yeah, this yeah. is going to be an ugly, ugly game. Um, I just don't trust Baltimore, really. And I think, while New York, I think, have been figured out a little bit, I think they've just got more talent at this stage, particularly... Uh, on on the uh, offensive side, uh, whereas Baltimore look like they're just a bit str- struggling a bit. Now this might change with the OC coming in this week and with Mornaweg and changing things up, but right now it's just difficult to have a lot of faith in a Baltimore team that seems to be finding ways to get itself into close games, not be able to really control games that it, like, the way it should be. Versus New York Giants that are a little bit directionless, a little bit wobbly, but ultimately have a potential to explode in a way that Baltimore just don't seem to right now. Mm. Uh, Baltimore also might be without Steve Smith going into this game, which will make a huge, huge difference to their air attack. Ah, yeah, but he can just be on the sidelines shouting shit at people. Trying to come <laughs> up. He'll just, just keep hollering shit at Odell Beckham until he just cries. Um, did you see Odell made up with the kicking I guys? did, that was brilliant. Uh, after their falling out there a week or two ago, he went off after he scored his first touchdown of the season and hugged the kicking net that previously beat the shit out of him. Um, oh, yeah, I've taken Baltimore in this game. Again, not loving either of these teams. I think Baltimore... Like they've got the roster to be able to to take it to a team like this, and some of the stuff that you said is very very true that they haven't been able to control games late and and and, and manage that properly. But they seem to have production coming out of the run game. They've now swapped OC, so I presume, <laughs> given that not using the run game was one of the biggest issues of the previous one, they might have fixed that now. Uh, and then there's also a small element which I know it can go either way. Uh, I'm going to take that coin flip of. There's not going to be tape on how these plays are going to be called, so it's going to be more difficult for the Giants to prepare their defense for it. So I think they might have a slight advantage. So on a very kind of close decision, I decided to, to take, a, take a coin flip on this new OC. LA at Detroit. Uh, I've taken LA. Fitz has taken Detroit. And for the fifth week in a row, uh, Harry has taken 7-9 bullshit. What does 7-9 and bu- nine bullshit mean this week, Harry? 7-9 bullshit this week is Detroit. Detroit, okay. Because Detroit look monotone, they look bad, they look unable to adjust. The Rams are possibly the worst team at making adjustments in the league. They do have, yes, an obviously very talented run game. We've seen them try and use the passing game a bit more. It still sucks. We saw it against Buffalo. It still sucks. They're going to struggle to get separation uh, against guys like Darius Slay. And look, this is just the game the Rams lose. You think, think about it, right? The Rams go up to play in Detroit. Detroit are bad. What happens? Rams lose. Could be. Like, my, my basis for the, for the LA pick is I don't trust Detroit. Uh, I also don't trust the Rams. But 
I probably trust their defense as the best unit out of the four in this. Although maybe one of their special teams is better. They got some real good long snap game or something. <laughs> like I don't know. Um, like LA, like I said, are just essentially random number generators. We don't know whether they're going to be good or bad on any given week. Uh, so I'm just going to bank on them showing up at this time. Also, they're like they've won a couple of games now. Uh, they're kind of rolling a little bit. Maybe Big Mo is going to help them. Anything you want to add, Fitz? Yeah, no, this is one of those games that you could futilely add a prediction, but in reality, none of us really know. Yeah. Like to be honest, I thought this one would have been a better one for Harry's tie of the tie of the year section, but uh, oh well. I always go off too early on that one. That's, That's it. Uh, next game wait. up is Carolina at New Orleans. I've taken New Orleans. Harry's taken Carolina, and Fitz has taken New Orleans. Fitz, why New Orleans? Yeah, like obviously, I don't think anyone would expected us to make this pick uh, at the beginning of the season, but right now Carolina look like a mess. Obviously, they're dealing with a quarterback who has concussion issues. Their defense is completely uh, lacking any bite, both in terms of had they expected problems with a new secondary, but also their pass rush failing to get to the passer. What that all sets up to is a big shoot-off between two teams that don't really have a good defense and on paper should have good offenses. And in this case, with New Orleans at home in the Dome, uh, I think you can always give them a good shout to come through in a shootout and score enough points to uh, overcome a Carolina team which just seems to be reeling right now uh, well <clears throat> this, this pick is predicated on Cam Newton being back I should clarify because it sort of actually occurred to me that without Cam Newton Carolina might actually just be a bad team and the only reason they're not a bad team is Cam Newton Jonathan Stewart might also be back which will definitely help them uh, if that is the case my pick here is that yes Carolina have looked bad but I think we've all forgotten how terrible the Saints have looked this season like they have not been good they've been in these weird sloppy coin flip shootouty games and they haven't won them against teams that they really should be beating in those. And then there was that Giants game where I, I don't even know what happened. They just couldn't do anything. I think, like, I have faith in the talent on Carolina's roster. Yes, they are wobbling. Yes, they are going through a very difficult transitionary period this season for no apparent reason whatsoever. But you look at, like, you say you've got your Greg Olsons, Kelvin Benjamin, players like that. Jonathan Stewart might be back. You've got Cam under center. And I just struggle to see the Saints' defense being able to deal with that. I think it's going to probably be a fairly high-scoring game. I think it's going to be probably a fairly messy game. Lots of swings and momentum and lots, score around lots, that Lots kind of, of fun to watch. Lots of fun. I'd say it will be a very, very fun game. But ultimately, I do think that Carolina just have the talent to do this when they have their pieces back versus a Saints team that is occasionally very, very explosive and very, very fun but doesn't seem to know how to win games and doesn't and seems to sort of crack when parts of their game don't go the way they want to. And remember, like this is something that's extremely lucky to beat even San Diego. No, fair enough. Like I, I like I agree with you entirely. I think it's going to be an exciting game. Uh, I'm just backing on. I think their defense is crap, but their offense is good. Carolina's defenses look bad, and New Orleans are at home after a bye week, so they might be a little bit more rested. Uh, that's that's my basis for that one. Uh, next game is my pick of the week: uh, Kansas City at Oakland. This is a very important game in division. Oakland looking to solidify themselves in the AFC West, while the Chiefs are kind of looking to establish themselves again. A uh, couple of main questions in this game are going to be, will the Chiefs' offense be able to get it together? Uh, Jamal Charles is back, which is going to be really nice. They've had a bye week to prepare. Reed is 15-2 and two after bye week. The other thing is we're going to have a question mark over our O-line. They've had two good games and two absolutely dog shit games, and it's going to be them versus Mack and Irvin, because I think the rest of the Oakland defense, while coming together a little bit, is still a weak part for that team. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how the Chiefs' offense work and if they change their philosophy uh, following the, the absolute blowout that they had before the bye 
then we have to look at how we're going to handle Oakland's weapons because Oakland are playing extremely well on offense. Amari Cooper and Crabtree are both playing excellent. They're going to be up against Peters and Gaines and occasionally Nelson. Like it's going to be a fight in the secondary as to who can who can survive. And also, I forgot entirely. Crabtree and Peters talk shit to each other during the games. He said uh, after the last game, Crabtree talked proudly about how he got one over when he went in long and scored a touchdown against that Peters kid. Literally, though, he wasn't being marked by Peters in that play, but uh, whatever. Like, our Raiders win moves into three games ahead uh, and two in-division wins at home. Not insurmountable, but like with how good the team looks, I'd really like to keep them closer, bring them back down to earth with a home loss, and if we could beat them in their house, it like sets us up real nice whenever we play them in our house later on in the season. So I think... Big important game, lots on the line for both these teams. So that's why I think it's going to be real exciting. I've taken KC, Harry's taken KC, and Fitz has taken Oakland. But I can actually see both sides of this one. For me, the most interesting matchup isn't even on the field this week. It's on the sidelines. You have Andy Reid, who, like his mustache, does not change for any season or any fashion or anything. Even with all of his foibles and time management issues. So someone who, you know, plays his game the way he wants against Jack Del Rio who is right now uh, I believe it's being I think the, the NFL trying to call it Jack Del Havos so right now Jack Del Rio obviously is at the height of his kind of Riverboat Ron era phase doing things which seem a bit crazy which seem a bit off and he's a very confident coach with a very young hungry team looking to make a statement here this to me the reason I give it Oakland is because right now I like that swagger I like that type of attitude and I think at home, that's enough for the moon. Like, they're winning games, even in games where they possibly should lose. So for me, what's, what will be most interesting is, like, two almost polar opposite type coaches coming together and making what should be a very exciting game. Did you hear anything about the, that, the play on uh, in the last game that won them the game, the deep pass to Crabtree? Oh, yes, yes. that It was uh, it was, it was was called at the line of scrimmage, wasn't it, rather it, than it... It was, yeah. They were going to run um, basically a quick slant concept to just get the first down. Carr saw the single coverage, said, no, you know what, Michael Crabtree on the fade, it's been money. And it was a throw he'd actually struggled to make during the game. The balls to make that call and then execute it from both him and Crabtree, phenomenal. Oakland are a very good team, but I think with Charles coming back and with, by week, time to organise themselves a bit better, I think KC are going to win. And what I think is also going to be quite a fun game. It's going to be all about mindset coming out of the bye because this is a Oakland team on the rise and a KC team has come off a horrendous loss. So hopefully they've got their heads right because this could be a fucking barn burner. Like. Um, the next game we're going to have a look at is uh, Harry's lock of the week. Or not lock of the week, pick of the week. Uh, <laughs> lock of the week, Jesus. Uh, Dallas at Green Bay. Uh, I've taken Green Bay, Fitz's taken Green Bay, and Harry's taken Dallas. Tell us a bit about this game, Harry. Well, it hasn't happened yet, so I can't tell you a bit about it. But I can tell you about how I think it's going to go. Um, I think <laughs> Fucking pedant. Like. <laughs> I don't know, Mystic Meg, like, when he said it was my lock of the week, I thought you were assuming my, uh, I knew it was going to happen. I said last week about Dallas-Cincinnati that Dallas are a good team and Cincinnati are an elite team. I fucking underestimated Dallas. Like, I think the game against Cincinnati was a real uh, coming-out party for these guys, uh, both offensively but also defensively. I think we're seeing a much more cohesive unit, and I think a much better coached unit than we've given Jason Garrett credit for at this point. Dak Prescott has gone from being a game manager to looking like a guy who can actually make the difference and do more than just run an offense efficiently. He can run an offense well. He's very, very accurate in his passing. I think you saw the comments from the Bengals coaches who were like, after the game, he went back and watched every single throw from Dak Prescott, and even the incomplete, they weren't bad throws. He doesn't make bad throws. He's finding ways to carve up uh, talented defenses, and bear in mind, Green Bay could be going into this game again and missing both of their number one cornerbacks in Sam Shields and Demarius Randall. You see that Ziggy Elliott looks... Monstrous. Oh, he's so good. He was 
Again, a guy who's looked like he's been gearing up to break out, a guy who already looks incredibly talented for a rookie. That was the game where, like, yeah, this guy is unquestionably one of the best running backs in the league already. So that's going to be a huge test for Green Bay to be able to handle that, particularly with the with the uh, the, the way Dallas' O-line can play and has been playing, even with injuries. On that, you look at that offense. Then you look at Green Bay's offense, and you're like, okay, Green Bay squeaked past New York, bizarrely on the strength of their O-line play. Rodgers had a lot of time to throw, a lot of time to make decisions and move around. The O-line played superbly, probably the best we've seen the Green Bay O-line play in a very, very long time, right? Rodgers was terrible. And you've got to start wondering if this narrative of Aaron Rodgers might just have hit the point where he can't play, like his body can't keep up, uh, younger than we'd expect given the longevity of guys like, I think, but I think the longevity of guys like Breeze and Brady and Rivers and, and Peyton Manning for that has given us perhaps a false sense of how long a quarterback should last. And it could be that Rodgers is just naturally hitting that phase because he doesn't look comfortable, he doesn't like he's able to make the throws, and he looks out of sync with his guys. Like Jordy Nelson targeted 14 times, he had like three or four catches. There's something wrong with that and when your team is so reliant on a guy like that and the run game by the way looks still looks doesn't look fantastic the team is dependent the team lives and dies by Aaron Rodgers right and Rodgers is struggling and that might be something that he just gets over or it might be the start of a decline it's too early to say yet but it is concerning on that basis you look at a Dallas defense that is now starting to come together and actually play well as a unit despite not being massively talent rich and not having huge marquee names you look at a Dallas offense that is proving that it can beat very good defenses like Cincinnati. You've got a Green Bay defense that's banged up and a Green Bay offense that's just misfiring. And I think you've got the perfect recipe for Dallas to actually go up here, look to say, right, we've made, we had a little coming out thing. Now that's for a real statement game against an unquestioned contender and we're going to beat them. And I just think Dallas have all the tools to make this work for them. And that's why I'm calling Dallas to win this game. No, of course. Like, they are... They are a very, very good team, top to bottom. Uh, like, like, like you said, the defense looks a lot better than we thought they were going to look, and so on. I do think Green Bay have struggled a bit. Maybe they're going to get it back together. One, one thing that's been floating around that I'm actually interested—we might actually have a chat about it on a later podcast—is, uh, is it? So, Aaron Rodgers is obviously a very talented quarterback. But what you've seen with all the quarterbacks who have stayed and had long careers is that they've had to adjust their play style as they move through. The question is. Are there flaws in Aaron Rodgers' way that he plays quarterback that he's been able to mask up to this point because of his natural ability and now that's coming home to roost that he needs to adjust a little bit and whether or not they have the personnel to help him to achieve that because they've never had to coach him like you would have to coach another quarterback. But this is a scenario where I think they're at home, they should have enough on offense to be able to maybe hang in this game and then because of the home field advantage and it is quite a good crowd and a very different atmosphere mm-hmm. that that might be play a part in it so that's why I've gone Green Bay in that but I, I, I see what you mean it could be a big statement game for Dallas now we're come on to Ronan's pick of the week uh Interestingly, we have uh, both picked our own teams uh, for, for, our, for our pick of the week. This is also a phenomenal game. Atlanta at Seattle. Uh, I've taken Atlanta, and I'm on me, on me lonesome again with this. Uh, both of you lads have taken Seattle. Ronan, this is your game. Tell us why this is going to be so exciting. Yeah, the only bad news is that all three of our picks are all on the late afternoon game uh, on Sunday. Sad times. Um, but in terms of this game... Yeah, it, it's like obviously Atlanta, as we've discussed already this podcast, had a statement game against the Denver Broncos, which has kind of pushed all of us probably considering Atlanta from, you know, maybe being a pretender team, being like beating up on like poor to average teams, to being, okay, here we actually have to consider the quality of this team, and this is a team that really could go on a run and be a force in the NFC. Of course, standing in their way, and in Central Link Park, where obviously they're historically good, are the Seattle Seahawks. 
coming off a bye week after basically pummeling the New York Jets, although is doing that these days, <laughs> is a very interesting matchup. Uh, obviously, Seattle, uh, Russell Wilson, Tyler Lockett, these are players, uh, Thomas Rawls, they've suffered injuries so far, but coming off that bye week, you might expect that those players will have a bit more of their health back, be all refreshed, and then Russell Wilson might have a bit of dynamicism back in them. I think he'll be dealing with some of the ankle sprain stuff throughout the season, but I expect him to be much closer to the traditional Russell Wilson we have. But what we saw in the New York Jets game is that if you put him in the pocket, he can still be a highly effective quarterback. Obviously, we know the Atlanta defense isn't great, but we still have very much questions about them. So the questions that we have on a matchup term for the Atlanta defense is, can they get the pass rush that they managed to get against Denver? Or was that a fluke due to an injured line? Now, Seattle's old linemen aren't exactly great to begin with. Come Jamarcus. And then, how will their how will their linebacking core deal with what are a lot of like mid like mid level um, specialists like Doug Baldwin and the rejuvenated Jimmy Graham? Those are players who can take advantage of holes in the linebacker in like in the second level and absolutely rip you to shreds due to that. And obviously there's a chance that Tyler Lockett's healthy they can get beaten over the top as well. So I think there's a lot of questions for Atlanta defense still. I don't think anyone considers that to be an elite defense. But can it, similar to Dallas, show up and be an average defense and let that offense roll? On the offensive side for Atlanta versus Seattle defense, obviously Seattle has one of the historically great defenses over the last few years. But it faces a great challenge here. I think similar to what we saw with Denver, you will see um, Atlanta attacking those intermediate zones with Devin Coleman with Devonta Freeman and trying to exploit what is historically a bit of a bit of a gap between the linebackers and the defensive unit. I think this is a really interesting game. This is a statement game. So if Connor, you're right, Atlanta win, I think everyone, the high, everyone's going to jump on that high train and we're going to go all the way to like Super Bowl contender type stuff. I think for Seattle, I think winning this would reassure everyone that Seattle are still the elite team we thought they are. Oh yeah, no, it should be real exciting. Like, one of the main reasons I am kind of staying on my Atlanta hype train at the moment is that I think we've started to see, and maybe maybe it's just the, the mirage of the slow start that Seattle are known for, but I think we started to see a bit of a drop-off from the Legion of Boom, that they're not as high-end as they were previously, and I do think that that's something that Atlanta can take advantage of, because I would, I would rate the... The secondary, even some of the coverage linebackers in the in the Denver uh, defense, higher than I currently would some of the Seattle ones. I I, I think I'm, it'll be very interesting to see how well they can perform against this Atlanta offense with multiple weapons. I think that's really the matchup that's going to decide what way this one swings. We're on to our last two games now. This is the late game on Sunday, Indianapolis at Houston. Uh, I've taken Indianapolis and you guys have both taken Houston. Harry, why Houston? Houston are bad. Indianapolis are badder. Like We've seen problems from Houston that they don't have a quarterback who can play when he's under pressure. Yeah, we saw like that their receivers are good but struggled with that quarterback situation to get separation down the field. The pass rush is still there, but again, against the tough O-line struggles. Indianapolis don't have any of those things. Indianapolis don't have any of the things that cause Houston problems because all of the things that cause Houston problems are basic football playing things. Mm. And Indianapolis are bad at pretty much everything at the moment. So I just think Houston's defense is still pretty solid. Their offense is still reasonably competent when it's taking on a soft defense. Indianapolis are a explosive but incredibly inconsistent offense that wilts under pressure and has a bad O-line. 
uh, and their defense is just not good. So I think Houston are going to be able to gut this one out at home. Oh, I, I 100% agree with all your criticisms, but I also think Houston are a dog shit team too. When it comes down to two poor teams playing poorly on both sides of the ball, I'm going to choose Andrew Luck over Brock Osweiler every single time. I think this will be a horrible game, and I'm very happy it's on so late that I will just not watch it. Uh, I'll probably catch the highlights because it, it's a strong contender for dumpster fire for next week, but we'll see, we'll see. And our last game, our Monday night game, is the Jets flying over to Arizona to play a currently wounded animal in the uh, in the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, we've taken Arizona across the board in this one. Uh, outside of mentioning interceptions, why is that, Ronan? Like, the Jets right now, it's kind of like, you know, one of those war movies where a mortar shell hits and everything's white noise. It's like, you can't hear anything. <laughs> you don't know what's happening. That's basically the New York Jets right now, except that it's, you know, Ryan Patrick throwing mortars to the opposing cornerbacks. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I forgot your rule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the Jets right now look like a team that is spiraling badly. And obviously that's not entirely unexpected because Ryan Fitzpatrick's a very streaky quarterback. The Jets needed to win a few of these games early on to set them up for what is a much easier home stretch. Right now they don't look to be able to do that. And while Arizona are a very wounded team right now, they should get Carson Palmer back. They do have David Johnson who continues to be Basically, him and Lev Bell are fighting it out to be the best all-round running back in the league. Uh, Kevin Coleman and Devonta Freeman together might form a competitor to that. But uh, overall... Wonder twins. Yeah, overall you expect the talent level of the Arizona team should be enough. That one risk is that both the starting guards, as you mentioned earlier, Arizona are gone. So maybe we might see that New York Jets front uh, front like that defensive line come true and create uh, internal pressure against coming off concussion Carson Palmer but I think right now you still have to give it to Arizona just because that offense has so much that it could give and the defense has looked pretty good in, in spots yeah like I do think I do think that guards thing is a potential issue especially given how injury prone the, <laughs> their quarterback is and we've seen that they don't work so well with him but you know that's good so we'll see how those how those hold up uh, any other crack yourselves lads any plans for this week Oh, my weekend is, uh, is politics again, unfortunately. So that's uh, fun times. Have to live with that, and then more politics the weekend after that, and then the weekend after that is Halloween. At last, no politics, just drinking. Way, what about yourself, Ronan? Any scandal? Uh, nothing too exciting planned for this weekend. Uh, Going to settle in with what should be a good weekend of football. A lot of good games, even if they did put them all on at the same time. Yeah, that's the thing. I, that's, I, like I suppose you can't blame the schedule makers if they don't like they don't know all that much in advance. But, like, they have the ability to flex. I know, right? So, why not flex? Because no one cares about Indianapolis and Houston. Anyone remember the last time the Jets played Arizona? Oh, yes. 7-6 to the Jets. Jesus. Uh, Jesus Christ. But, yeah. No, it should be fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Fairly quiet this week. Uh, got a few bits and pieces to do around the house. And, uh, and yeah, just mostly, mostly chill, relax, recoup. And then, yeah, get ready for, for Halloween. I have to still pick out the costume. I'm thinking... The, the girls have suggested I go up and get the my old Buzz Lightyear costume and, uh, <laughs> and rock that for the day. I said I'll go up and I'll try it on, but I'm not sure if it'll still fit. Turn into a Teletubby costume. Yeah, it's just just cut a section in the front and let the gut hang out. Like. I'm, I'm just going to buy a pair of boots and go as Tom Brady. Like. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. 
But no, that should be yeah, that should be good crack. But yeah, um, yeah. So I say thanks again for listening for your questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, we will block you if you're a knob online, so you know don't be that guy or those guys rather. But yeah, hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on email account, and anything else we're on. Uh, is there anything else we're on, Harry? Any any fun new tech things? No, I think we meant something the Pinterest. Oh yes, Pinterest. Uh, that's where we'll sell our handcrafted wares. Yeah, that's Etsy. Etsy. Oh, sorry, Etsy. Yeah, we'll set up an Etsy account as well. Uh, LinkedIn, of course. LinkedIn, yeah, yeah LinkedIn. LinkedIn, we're in a bit of new media, social projects, trying to uh, explore the depths of NFL analysis. No, I think I, th- I think the term is disrupt, isn't it? So we're, we're, oh, yeah, we're, 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 we're disrupting sports media. We're disrupting the space of, sport, of sports in the media vertical. Oh, Jesus Christ. Stop working for Facebook. <laughs> uh, Right, guys, thanks again. Uh, Like I said, hit us up if you want. If you don't, fair enough, we don't care. Uh, We'll see you all next week. Bye.